Hey, welcome to the People Show, a podcast-only version with the early Canucks game. I'm Bick Nazar. I'll be back later on the post-game show, so if you're tuning in, you can always tune in to the post-game pod as well on the Canucks Central feed. Uh, coming to you from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.com. We'll get into a bunch of stuff, including uh, trade deadline locker room dynamics with Brad May, longtime NHLer, joins us here on uh, the Thursday edition of The People's Show. NHL trade deadline coverage brought to you by Maui Jim Sunglasses. Born on the beaches of Hawaii, Maui Jim Sunglasses are designed with polarized plus-two lenses that protect eyes from harmful rays, enhance the view. Try on a pair and see for yourself. All right, we chatted with Brad May last week, and we started to discuss uh, some locker room dynamics, and we uh, ran out of time like a deadline. Uh, let's connect with a longtime NHLer, former Vancouver Canuck, Brad May right now. Brad, how are you? I'm doing great. I just wish I was in Vancouver physically. Um, I miss it out there. Oh, it, it, it's cold and sunny today, and people are taking over the rain that we've had here recently. So it, it's it's gorgeous today, uh, just to, despite the lower temperatures. It's always beautiful. It's always beautiful, even even on those rainy days. But I'll tell you what, it's a hell of a lot better than the the slushy snow that we get out here in Ontario. I can tell you that. Uh, all right. Last time we were talking last week, uh, we had a lot of fun near the end of it, talking about you know trade deadline, and, and and you were telling us stories of you know going to a new locker room and Steve Steos and and fitting in a new locker room, and didn't really have enough time to sink our teeth into it. But I, I think as we get closer to March third here for the for the NHL trade deadline, I do want to ask you about like locker room dynamics going into the deadline or after trades are done here, because you know we can talk about values for teams and long term projections and asset management. Ultimately what happens is you know new bodies go into locker rooms and it has to work these are key decisions coming at a pivotal time of the year you know the dynamics of what it means to a locker room as you get to this stage what's important for you if, if you're a team in the bubble uh the playoff bubble right now what do you want to see from management generally well i think every team on the bubble wants to see something happen um and obviously it's not going to happen to every team but they want to see it positively your team impacted by you know your GM going out to make a trade for a you know a formidable player. Um, what ends up happening for bubble teams though is a lot of the players that actually probably want this to happen because they believe they're part of the future. There's casualties. Um, the new player comes in or new players come in, and all of a sudden the dynamic is upset or overturned. And and the guy that's actually been you know wishing and hoping that that their team makes a trade. They find themselves, you know, playing less less ice time, way out as well. So um, it's all it's never perfect, but I just love this time. I was, you know, later in my career, second half for sure. Um, trade deadline day was always, you know, whether it was rumors, there was always scuttlebutt that, you know, would I be moved as a player? And I always found that pretty, pretty amazing, pretty exciting, um, flattering for sure to hear your name, but. Um, so often, you know, you you get caught thinking about those things, and then you don't, you know, focus 100% for the task that that you have to complete today, tomorrow, and the next one. So, um, I think the focus is really important, and it, and you know, it doesn't take much to throw someone's game off. So, um, I think for players, stop reading between the lines, go play, play as hard and as well as you can. And you know what? If there's scouts and people that you know value you and, and 
and see value, um, that's a good thing. And then you play hard enough that your team doesn't want to get rid of you. That's also a great feeling for a player, especially guys that want to stay in said location. Who is the player that when they arrived into your locker room and, and whether you were a contending team or a, a bubble team, whatever it was, but who is the guy that came into the room and you, you the whole team just knew, okay, yeah, this guy is a fit, whether it's personality or whether it's a playing style, uh, who is the person that, that, that stepped into the room and kind of put a smile on everyone's face of, hey, the management believes in us or this guy fits perfectly? You know what? I think I, so often, I, I mean, I, I, I hope that my name would be thrown around there and the teams I was created to um, did everything, you know, in my power as an individual to just be part of the group. And you really have to understand the dynamics. Uh, and I, that's what I'm saying. The older you get, the more experience. Mm-hmm. It's, easy, it's easier to transition from one location to the next because you know you've had that experience prior. But um, for me, if I look back to my time in Vancouver, although it was we we ended up losing in Game Seven in the first round of the playoffs to Calgary, that was the year 2003. Uh, excuse me, maybe even 2004 playoffs that um, that we really had a great team and we probably should have went a lot deeper. Um, we had obviously the hiccup with Todd Bertuzzi being suspended and, you know, really threw our team into, you know, a little bit of turmoil, but we trained for a couple guys. We got a guy like Jeff Sanderson came to our team. Um, we love that. Jeff brought speed. He brought offense, you know, or the perception of offense for sure. Um, that was great. Martin Rusinski didn't know much about him, but what a great personality he had. And he seamlessly fit into our group, really liked him and, and the other guy that probably didn't play as much, but um, we all know his name, Mark Bergevin, mm-hmm. created team in Vancouver. And I can tell you this, he's one of the funniest. And, and, and I know he's, he, he's a general manager, was, and he probably will be again. Um, Mark Bergevin as a teammate was probably one of the best of all time. Um, certainly one of the funniest. And um, just his personality coming into our locker room at a heavy time of the year, um, he really made a difference. Um, although we didn't end up winning, um, Mark Bergevin was a was a great pickup, um, a, a bright light, and certainly lots of smiles. And this guy understood what it what it meant to be part of a team and and how to team build. And um, I think we learned a lot from Mark. What was important to you when you arrived in a new locker room of of, of how to fit in and and get acclimated with the new teammates? Well, like I said, so, you know, I told you the story about Steve Stales, mm-hmm. and that was so profound. You know, and Stevie and I played junior together, and I was in his wedding party. Like, we're dear friends to this day. Um, you know, you learn a lot from your teammates and your friends. It's amazing. And um, so, but going to different locker rooms and playing with different teams with that same passion, and the passion is to do whatever it takes for your teammates. Um, I, I, I think what, just don't be a jackass. Don't come in and try to upset. There's a dynamic. Like I was always, as a person, you know, love being in the mix, you know, making jokes and playing pranks on your teammates, keeping it light, right? And also, you know, firing your teammates up for those tough games, but um, not stepping on anyone's toes and understanding that that team, especially the good ones, they already had personalities like that that actually took care of, you know, certain moments of, in their locker room and you just don't come in and try to be a hero. And I think that's more awareness than it is anything else. And we all can, um, but the idea of understanding 
trying to get to know your teammates quickly and having not uncomfortable conversations, but real conversations of, you know, I know a little bit about you as a player, but, you know, where'd you come from? Do you have brothers and sisters? And it's very important to, to build that trust and that bond with your teammates. And um, it takes a long time for organizations to get that buy-in from everybody. But when you're a new guy or you have a new lease on life being traded to a new team, um, you can kind of reinvent yourself as well. You know, do things that use the things that were successful for you in the past that you've witnessed me speaking of Mark Bergeron and Martin Rosinski and others learning about their experiences, but also, um, you know, using what worked well for you and, and how you could acclimate in, the, in, in a different situation, a different locker room. Uh, that's all the personality stuff. Obviously the most important part is understanding exactly what the coach wants, mm-hmm. where he wants you, what, what kind of system you're playing. Now, a leopard doesn't change his spots, but he certainly can be more aware of the game plan. That's, I mean, as players, we have to be smart. It's an education, you know, in that locker room. Maybe the guys aren't great, you know, book smarts and school smarts, but um, every guy in the National Hockey League has proven that they have the ability to, to learn and, and, and understand hockey. And um, There are staples, though, to certain coaches um, that they find most important. And I'll give you a story just quick. I was in Colorado playing for Joel Quenville, who I believe should be a coach in the National Hockey League to this day. It's unfortunate what happened in Chicago or in Florida for him. But Joel, he never wanted me to run run guys over and, and get in. Like I always was guy to get in on the forecheck. But his big thing was stick on the ice and seal the boards. Two very simple, you know, um, orders. But when you're trying to hit somebody, you know, full speed, I, I, I couldn't figure it out because my stick, my habits, my stick would come off the ice because you're trying to knock a guy through the boards or on his, on his back and, you know, knock him down or whatever that is. And all of a sudden, I, I was taught years into my career that you got to go stick on puck first and basically break up that pass or certainly influence the puck. That's why you're trying to hit. I mean, there's a purpose to hitting. And it's not all the physical. It's about rushing the player to make the wrong play up the board. And whatever you do, you know, when I was trying to hit, I never sealed the board because I was skating kind of from the inside of the ice to the board. And what Joel wanted was 10, 15 feet before you actually got to that player, get yourself to the boards and take that passing or or outlet away from um, the opposing defenseman. And I found it very difficult to go from my mindset, which was, you know, first on the puck, you make you make physical contact, to really having a couple other thoughts in your head, and it kind of took me a little bit of time to 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 adjust and, and to be quick because you're thinking, you become slower. So getting to that point where you can trust yourself and trust your positioning. Can we just uh, try to draw that out a bit there too? So essentially you were kind of working parallel to the, the goal line as far as like working to the boards and you were asked to go more vertical. Well, so, okay. So par- parallel to the boards, perpendicular from the goal line. So c- basically coming as a forward, you know, going up the ice, I always wanted to make a, make a defenseman turn back up the boards. Okay. So, and if in the apex of the ice or the center, he drew a line down the center of the ice between the goal nets, um, any time that a defenseman was on either side, right side, left side, 
my whole mission throughout my career was to make him turn up the strong side, to not let him get past that, that center line. Because all of a sudden, when you get past that center line, um, your whole defensive posture of your team, all five guys have to be in sync to really be able to shut it down. When, you, when you're able to cut the ice in half and force that player back into the strong side, it was, more, it was easier to, to create contact and actually influence the direction of that player. The problem is you're on the inside of the ice when you do that, and therefore that puck was an easy outlet up the boards. And if you're second forward, and heaven forbid your defenseman's not up the blue line with any idea to pinch, it's an easy outlet for the other team. And um, I thought I was doing my job, and I watched a lot of video of me screwing up the Colorado Avalanche's forecheck, thinking all along that I was doing my job and doing it right. Um, it was hard for me at that time because I, you know, once you do something for long enough, it's hard to change habits. Um, over the course of time, I really do believe that for two years with Joel, I, w- I ended up getting traded to Anaheim, lucky enough to be part of a team to win a Stanley Cup, but do some great things and employ those teachings. You know, on your new team in Anaheim, I, well, from Colorado, I'm telling you, Joel Quinville, Jacques Pucci, Tony Granato, they had me playing probably more responsible, better hockey, and I didn't know it at the time, but I, I, I definitely think back on those moments and, and, and relish them. How, how long of a process was that for you? Because obviously we're, we're looking at details here in Vancouver and, and certain uh, playing styles for players and, and trying to break habits. Like You were there for a season and a half, right? 60-some-odd games? Yeah. How, how long yeah. was that process for you of, of learning that trait? Probably, honestly... I thought you took me the whole time, but but because I'm I played as an aggressive guy, and, <clears throat> excuse me, try to get in on the on first on the puck. Myself as the second forward, it was much easier for me because I I could read and anticipate where the puck was going when the other guy was doing what he was supposed to do. And by the way, the guy ahead of me, who I'm speaking of, that I was supposed to be at times, can really influence the direction of the puck by his positioning. Mm-hmm. Make job of the, the second and third forwards and the other four guys makes their job so much easier to read to, to, that if they know that you're sealing one side or the other, then you can actually really anticipate where the puck is headed. Um, in saying that, um, I think the hardest part for me was my own identity. If I'm not making that first big hit, am I a lesser player? And I think the answer there that I found out is it's not all about the big hit. It's about the positioning to influence the play, but also be predictable for your other teammates. And so I think I had an identity crisis, you know, in Colorado when I was thinking like that. Um, and, and they were on it. They were on it. We did a lot of video, and it did make a difference in my play. Um, I know I wish I met those guys 10, 12 years earlier in my career. I think I would have been even better uh, or more responsible at times. So, um, you can never stop learning. Um, I think new coaches, it's, it's a new opportunity to, again, redefine who you are and reinvent yourself. But it is important to gain that trust of your coaches, which therefore you're on the ice to gain the trust of your teammates. So obviously like they would have identified you as a player, say, hey, he brings a certain level of physicality. Did you still find, like, as that was being remodeled for you, that you still were able to bring that level of physicality that you wanted to bring? 
Absolutely. And actually probably even more impactful. But my thought was if I stopped making those big hits or, or forcing the plays by, by that, that robust play, if I don't do it, am I thought lesser of? Do I lose the respect right. of my coach? Which clearly is not the case. And I think that's the identity crisis I had. And I was an older player and, 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 and a very thoughtful player, right? Like I did pay attention and I understand the game. So um, I think for young players, it's, it, it's the communication that they're going to have with their new coach or the coaches that they have to actually employ, you know, those, you know, those traits. And if the coach is not mad at you and this is what he wants, then shut your mouth and do it. Right. I mean, get smarter. I think, I think as guys, as men in general, if there's women listening to this, we're dumb, right? Like we, we, we're very habitual. We, it doesn't take much for us. We think we're doing the right things, but we don't take criticism or, or gentle nudging to, the, you know, to do the right thing. Sometimes we get a little defensive, and, and that's a weakness. That's a bigger weakness than we all, we all understand. So uh, listen to your coach. Change your play. You'll play more. When you play more, you play better. When you play better, your teammates like you more and you make more money. It's a simple, simple cascading effect, I think. But it was a long time into my career to figure that out and maybe I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. That coachability factor, I was talking about that yesterday on the show, kind of unveiling a new segment where we're talking about the best players in the past week for the Vancouver Canucks. And I had Kuzmenko as my number one player over the past five, four games here because he took exactly what we talked about of someone who was getting 10 12 minutes a game and now being thrust to 18, 22 minutes a game and producing. And you see in that last goal that he scored, it's winning off the boards, working through contact, getting the puck, going straight to the net. It's all these things that Rick Tocca was talking about two weeks ago and the application of it right away. Absolutely. And, and, and so after our last conversation, I, I did have some people reach out to me because um, we were talking about Kuzmenko's contract and should they have signed him to a two-year deal? Why wouldn't they? You know, the conversation over the last few weeks was, why wouldn't they trade that player for a pick? Well, at the end of the day, it's the National Hockey League. And the only way you can play and have a successful franchise is have good players, number one. Vancouver's lucky. I think lucky. I think they're very fortunate to get this player on that contract. And he, he's, he's meshed well with the, the Villiers. He's meshed well with Pedersen. And you need to have guys to, to look up to and chase that internal competition. Um, I do like it. I, I like his play. He's been scoring goals. The other player that's really made a difference is Connor Garland. Mm-hmm. He's playing like he did last year for the Vancouver Canucks. Um, you know, it, it's and, and Pedersen's been great, right? I love the goal where he set up Luke Shen jumping down the back, back yep. side. Um, it was against Philadelphia. But Philadelphia Flyers got puck watching because Pedersen's got such great hands. A couple spin moves. All of a sudden, he hits the back door. Luke makes an easy back door pass, and it was like tap-in goal. Um, that's all. That's all starts from the confidence with the puck, holding on to it, buying time and space for your teammates. It's not always about the guy with the puck. It's about creating opportunities for others. And I think that was really that was a beautiful goal, and and that's a great way to play. And if Vancouver can do more of that, they'll get they'll find themselves in the win column a heck of a lot more for sure. You mentioned you know, getting ready for a trade deadline and, and you know your name might be in, in the rumor mill. How, how much were you aware of when talks were happening or uh, destinations uh, that might materialize for you? Interestingly, not as much as probably even what I will tell you. 
And the only reason why is I think we're jaded now because every story and every rumor you, you see now because of social media and, you know, the different platforms. So these players are in a fishbowl. Um, yes, I played when, I mean, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff, all that basically came in, you know, I retired by 10. So it just, it just basically been adopted, right? 2007, we won the Stanley Cup and all those media platforms outside of Facebook, none of them existed, right? So we didn't have that chance. Talking to our agents, you know, when you're on Trade Watch, you're on, you're on the phone with your agents all the time, listening and getting scoops. And some of those scoops are probably just scuttlebutt, but um, I think you got some information. But I think today uh, there's so much more. And I guess the question is, is it accurate information? Is it stuff that you should pay attention to? Or, you know, if it motivates you, watch and read it all. And if it distracts you, then you should put your phone down. Back in my day, put the newspaper down, um, turn off the TV. Because if you get distracted, it can't help you as a player. And I think the hard part in Canada more than the United States is more passion, you know, across the country for hockey. Um, that appetite for these stories, um, it's harder to play in those if you're, if you're a player that gets distracted. A lot of guys love the chatter, and that's what motivates them. Look at Patrick Kane. He's in Chicago. He knows the rumors are happening and the story's out there. And this guy's gone out in the last couple of weeks. He's scoring hat tricks and, and, and lighting it up like he's 25 again. So um, you got to know who you are as a player. Do you like this new little trend that we're seeing? Uh, TRR is being called trade-related reasons. Guys are being healthy scratched. Uh, I, I can understand if it's a, a game or two and suddenly you know four days go by and, and a player's finally moved. I, I just I look at someone like Jacob Chikorin, it's, you know it, it's been a while since he's hit a game, and I, I, I just I don't like it when it goes that long. What do you think about these uh, trade-related reasons scratchings? Okay, first of all, I understand it because the, the, the money, the salary – or, the, or certainly the contract is more important than the player in most cases, right? Mm-hmm. In these trades. Um, and it's important for the team that's either getting the player or, or getting rid of the player. So I understand the, 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 the move that way. I don't like it for a second. I can tell you this, um, in all my experiences the playing, um, and I, I can't say it happened every time, but most times when a team trades for a player on a losing, in, in a losing campaign, from a team that's, you know, below 500 or, you know, not a successful team. There's reasons for it. That player isn't in shape. He doesn't have winning habits. He doesn't have that discipline. And coming to a new environment is too hard for him. Not enough time um, for, for that player to get up to speed. And he never, ever makes the difference that he's expected to. And so there's a lot of trades at the trade deadline that truly they don't work out. They don't work out for, for the player that, that in that in that playoff run. Because a guy like Jacob Chikrin, listen, he's a, he's been historically known as one of the hardest working fitness freaks. So I have to imagine if he's and his dad's a player, he grew up in hockey, um, he's keeping himself in shape. But if you're not playing, it's very different from co- practicing to playing. Playing shape is very different. And when you go from a team like the Arizona Coyotes that truly when they lace up their skates, they're pretty much expecting to lose. You go from that mindset to, let's say, he gets traded and thrust into a, you know, a top six team in the NHL. That these these guys that are playing have been battling internally on 
in their practices all season long to have ice time, um, that player may have a hard time catching up and, and, and getting up to speed. I'm not saying that's with Jake, Jacob Trickling, mm-hmm. but when you, when you hold players out, listen, we're hockey players. That's what we do. Um, and you take a week off, you might have a great, great week. You take a week off, you come back, you may never find your form again. So for me as a, as a player, I don't like it, but I do understand why coaches and GMs, you know, have, have chosen to go down that road. Is there a timeline where for, where it can be acceptable? I, I kind of just look and say, you know, seven to ten days. Chickren's coming up on fourteen tomorrow. So here's my other thought, and just as a as a you know former player, but just a fan, why? Like when you're making trades, it's about creating a marketplace for for that player, but also creating a marketplace that listen, you're not going to get screwed over because every GM's trying to fleece the other guy, right? Mm-hmm. The moment the moment Arizona says, okay, we're, we're holding him out for trade reasons. Okay, so now all of a sudden it hasn't happened for 14 days. This guy was bluffing all along. I'm not trading him my first round picking. At that best, he gets my second rounder. Listen, I don't need the player. I want the player. But you're not going to get my top prospect anymore because you basically just showed me that you're playing poker and I know your hand. It, it, to me, I think it's a silly decision for any general manager to do it that way. I understand the salary implications. I do. And injuries are a factor. But at the end of the day, why tip your hand? The best general managers make moves when nobody, there's no rumors, and the move happens, right? And the best moves are made that way in my, my estimation. Hey, Brad, uh, this is awesome. Uh, next week uh, when we talk, the trade deadline will be through, and we'll get a chance to see uh, how the dust settles and really look who, who's going to be uh, making a big push uh, the rest of the way. Uh, we'll chat then. I, lo- I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me again. That's our guy, Brad May, again every Thursday here on The People's Show. I'm out of here. Uh, we'll catch you tomorrow on The People's Show as well, uh, live on Sportsnet 650, home of the Canucks. Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.